Chapter Four of the Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Four. The snowflakes were already beginning to float down over Blue Hill in the north, and the days were dark and gloomy. The roads leading to the village shop resounded with the tramp of iron heels as the fishermen flocked to it like birds of passage assembling in preparation for their long journey. They all looked more or less alike, in their white canvas blouse, black felt hat with a brim as wide as an umbrella, and grey homespun trousers that below hung down over the tops of their boots. Some, however, wore red woollen caps with a tassel that dangled over one ear. They went first to the shop on the nearer side of the bridge, which they filled, packed closely, shoulder to shoulder, while the hump-backed shopman behind the counter darted about hither and thither in the lamplight, taking things down from shelves and wrapping them up in wrong order. Occasionally he received money in exchange, which he threw into the till, but most of the purchases had to be entered in a long book to which a pencil was attached by a piece of string. Those customers whose purchases, as entered in the books, were of one and two years standing, preferred to keep in the background and make remarks about the weather, but they were obliged to come forward in the end. They all wanted credit for sacks of flour, tobacco, rye cake packed in brand new casks, kegs of treacle, barrels of coffee, leather and paraffin. They were almost all in debt from the year before but they were all expecting that this time the Lofoten fisheries would both free them from debt and make them wealthy, for this year would surely be a good year. The hump-backed man behind the counter looked at them one after another. If they did not get what they wanted from him, they would go to his rival on the other side of the bridge, and if they got it there, they would go there first, when they had something to pay with. The village shops, however, did not keep everything the fishermen wanted, so most of them sailed up the fjord through the falling snow to the town. On the wharves all around the harbour there were little shops where everything necessary for a fisherman's outfit could be obtained, oilskins, rope, twine for nets, hooks, etc., down to writing paper for Lofoten letters. Heavy sea-boots, wet with mud and snow, stamped in here, and the fog from outside floated in through the door, to which a bell was attached. Behind the counter, with his back to a wall, on which there was a great display of rope and twine, stood a sturdy man, dressed in homespun and high boots, his face, beard, and clothes all bearing traces of flour, tar, and treacle. This was Utnes, and he had once been a fisherman himself. Christaver and Peter Schussonza met here, when the shop was full of men from both inland and coast districts, all wanting their Lofoten outfit on credit. "'Very well,' Utnes was saying to a little red-bearded man, "'but this must really be the last time.' The gas over the counter was lighted, and the bell on the door kept on ringing, and many had been standing for hours without having stated their errand. At last Utnes's eye fell on Peter Susansa, who was standing there with one hand in his pocket, and his shoulder thrust forward. "'What do you want?' "'Well, 
"'I should like the whole shop,' said Peter, with his nasal twang, his face quite serious. Utnes could not help smiling, for Peter Susansa owed for several years, but it was cheering to the others standing round to find that someone was able to make the great man behind the counter drop his shop expression. Peter said he would have liked everything that was to be had there, and would have paid cash down, but, unfortunately, he had forgotten to bring any change, so he would have to be content with rather less. And he thereupon gave a list of all the things he must have. It was not easy to say no to a man who made the whole shopful of people laugh. Again the bell rang as the door opened to admit Jacob. He had been taken up the evening before for being drunk, and had spent the night at the police station, but now he was out again, and had come to do business. There was certainly no false modesty about him. He pushed noisily into the counter, and began to express his horror at all the poisonous, ill-natured things people can say. "'What's up now?' asked Utnes. "'Why, there are those rascally fellows going about and saying that things are so much better at Larsen's down on the quay. I gave them a thrashing yesterday, and got a night's free lodging for it, but now, damn it all, you'll have to let me have some rope and twine for taking your part.' Utnes shook his head doubtfully. He knew Jacob was lying, but even that was better than when men leaned over the counter and quoted scripture when they wanted credit. But Christaver wanted to buy a good deal, and Utnes opened his eyes wide. Christaver wanted things for five men. "'Yes, it is easy enough for you when you can afford to buy a Lofoten boat,' said Peter Susansa. And this Utnes heard, as it was probably intended he should. He took it in. Christaver looked like a man who would pay his way. When their purchases were made, the men sailed back down the fjord, through the falling snow. There would be plenty to do now before Christmas. The living room at Miran was full during those evenings, and the smoking lamp shed its dull yellow light upon many busy hands. At one side of the room sat Lars and Olaf, trying which of them could net codnet the quickest, while Christaver sat at another, putting the edge onto the nets. The ten-year-old Tosten and little Jonetta, who was six, were sitting on the floor, fully occupied in filling the netting shuttles with twine. Maria was hard at work knitting two thick woolen jerseys for the Lofoten men to wear over their woolen and cotton shirts, and they had blue and red rings around the sleeves and waist. Even the old grandmother, with spectacles on, was busy, and sat by the stove dipping the new woolen gloves and socks into hot soapy water, and rubbing them upon a fluted board, so that they would become matted and be thick and warm. "'Your feet will be nice and warm,' she said to Lash, showing him one of the socks she was working at. Then they had the shoemaker in the house, and when Lars stood in his new soft sea-boots that could fall down over the knee, but could also be pulled right up the thigh, he requested Ulf to get out of the way so that he could have room to move. And just at that moment his father brought in a large bag from the porch, and threw it across to him, 
and out of it appeared a new shining southwester and a yellow oilskin coat that smelled very fresh and was so sticky that his fingers almost stuck to it. "'My word!' said Olaf, staring with all his eyes. "'Hold your jaw!' said Lars, for there was still a large leather skirt to draw down over the tops of his boots. When at last he had put on all his finery, he looked quite like a warrior in full armour, and it was silly of that little donkey Yonetta to come just then and tease him by asking him to come out and run races. There followed some clear, windless, frosty evenings, which turned the road up through the ravine into a sinuous ribbon of shining ice, which went up and up until it was lost in the very sky itself. It was a grand time for tobogganing, and when Lars left his netting and went out on to the doorstep and heard the shouts and laughter on the hills, and saw the trail of sparks when the iron under the runners of a sledge passed over a stone or a patch of sand, it was not easy for him to resist joining in the sport. He was a Lofoten man now, it was true, but on the other hand he had a sledge that was called the Lightning, because it went so much faster than all the others. And before he knew what he was about, he had stolen round to the outhouse, and in another moment was racing up the hills with a sledge at his heels, without having told Ulf. At the foot of the hills the boys and girls collected, and went up again all together, and Lars had friends enough all over the neighbourhood. There was lanky Peter Rönningan, who stammered, and could never pass for confirmation because he was so stupid. The others called him Peter Galeas. Martin Bruvol was called Martin Furrug, and they called Lars Bright Eyes, and Olavus Koya Dear Death. There were large and small sledges, and girls of about the same age as the boys, not mere children, nor yet quite grown up. As they hurried up the hill, talking busily, there came a shout from higher up out of the darkness. Hello! Clear the road! And a sledge flew past, with many feet sticking out on both sides, and shouts from their owners. After half an hour's climbing, they had reached the dark hills right up under the stars, from which they could see the fjord far below, beneath the mountains in the west with here and there upon its surface a ship's lantern, and farther east their own district, dotted all over with the lights from the fishermen's cottages as far out as Lindegord. Three or four of the company placed themselves upon the largest sledges, where Martin Bruvol sat farthest forward to steer with his feet. The girls shrieked with mingled terror and delight as they started, and the speed grew faster and faster. The wind cut their faces and went through their bodies. The sledge rounded a curve on one runner, and in another curve nearly flew off into a broad ditch, but escaped it. On it went in the darkness, faster and faster, as the road grew steeper. On the middle of the last hill something black appeared that did not make way for them. "'It's a horse!' was the despairing shout from all on the sledge, but it was impossible to stop, and on one side of the road there was the rocky cliff, and on the other blocks of stone to mark the edge of the road, and beyond them a deep ditch. 
the horse reared and snorted and the man holding the reins swore and shouted but the sledge dashed past at the side of the road and disappeared in the darkness leaving a fiery trail behind it just as the man was about to drive on he heard more shouting and ran forward to hold the horse's head but he slipped on the ice and fell full length as the second sledge flew past it was not every one that Lars would have with him on the lightning this evening it was ellen koya although he and she had not been the best of friends of late one reason being that she was always such a tease other people teased them both however declaring that they had been married some years before and were man and wife the wedding had taken place in the barn at koya one sunday in the summer when the children had assembled to play one suggested that they should play at entertaining guests another that ellen and Lars should be bride and bridegroom a door was laid upon a barrel to represent the altar and martin bruvol draped in a tarpaulin was the priest and the next moment ellen and Lars were standing in front of the altar with downcast eyes like a real bride and bridegroom the bride was then only twelve and was dressed in a blue check dress a wreath of buttercups rested upon her fair hair above a face that was then as now pretty and pink but no one could see her large blue eyes for she never raised her eyelids and stood with folded hands while the other children sang the voice that breathed over eden large christophersen miran said the priest wilt thou have this woman to thy wedded wife yes said Lars. this was fun and a thrill ran through him at the thought that he was now grown up and was being married i likewise ask thee ellen ull's daughter koya if thou wilt have this man Lars christophersen miran to thy wedded husband yes answered ellen still looking down with folded hands will you be faithful to one another yes said both ellen and Lars. then join hands in token thereof said martin and they joined hands and martin placed his upon their heads and blessed them after which they had coffee and refreshments and dancing just as at any grown-up wedding in the barn the next time they met was on the way to school they were a large company and Lars did not like to look in her direction he had to put up with the teasing from the others but when she came and asked him to carry her books he thought it was going too far and he told her in so many words that he was not her husband to-day because he had been it yesterday silly she said tossing her head and blushing crimson and thereupon he was informed that if she ever took a husband it would not be a cad like him a quarrel ensued to the great amusement of the others poor things they said have matters already gone so far and only yesterday they were standing at the altar but from that day they preferred to ignore each other when they met this evening they had happened to walk up side by side and the distance between them and the others gradually increased you're angry with me she said it is you who are angry he returned she laughed at this and then he laughed too and after that there was not much more to be said about the quarrel 
and to think that you're a man already and are going to Lofoten, she said. And you've been so ill, he said. Was it inflammation of the lungs? Do you think it's wrong of you to be out this evening? His thought for her touched her, and she took hold of the sledge rope to help him pull, and it was strange how near their hands felt to one another, even though they had on woolen gloves. "'You'll be writing Lofoten letters to all your sweethearts this winter, I suppose,' she said. But Lash assured her that he was not even going to take pen and ink with him. "'Oh, I like that. You are a storyteller. But I suppose it wouldn't do to write to a girl who isn't confirmed.' "'No, I should be taken up and put in prison for that.' "'Hold my glove, will you, while I tie my garter?' she said. They were now far in advance of the others, and quite alone, and at the very top of the hills he took her glove and rubbed her cheeks with it, because he declared she was cold. Around them were the dark hills, and above them the stars. They seated themselves upon the sledge, and he was quite equal to steering with his feet, although she was sitting on his knees, leaning back so that he had to support her with his arm as they flew along. Once upon a bridge the lightning made a leap into the air, and was quite a long time before it came down again, but it struck the road again without flying into splinters, and they dashed on, shouting, frightening the driver of the sleigh almost out of his wits, down to the level ground, with its numerous lights shining in the darkness. Before the young people separated, they stood talking on the road at the foot of the hill for a little while. They had gone to the same school, and had played many a game together, both in winter and summer, and now they would soon be men and women. Several of the boys were going to Lofoten this winter, and the girls looked at them with the thought that they might never come back again. In any case, there was an end to games and tobogganing. A period of their life was over, and a new one was beginning in which everything would be more serious than before. As Lash went down toward Miran, he discovered that he still had one of Ellen Koya's woolen gloves in his hand. He took off his own and drew hers on, and it was really wonderful how warm and soft it was inside. Christmas came with snow and wind and as soon as it was over, the great heavy Lofoten boats were dragged out of the boathouses. There they lay full length upon the beach, not rigged as yet, but the men were very busy getting them loaded, and shouted and made signs with their hands to one another when they had anything to say, as if they were already at sea. By the boathouse below Miran lay the seal, long and heavy, and the strangest things were being shipped in her. There were nets in barrels, food in barrels, home-brewed ale in barrels, a barrel of sour whey to mix with soup and as a drink mixed with water, a barrel of oil for the lamp in the hut, chests, boxes, and skin-rugs. Most of it disappeared into the large space midships where there was room for much more. The boat looked like some good-natured animal as she lay there letting people clamber about and do what they liked with her. Now and then the men would stop work, and the bottle would be passed around. The same activity was to be seen round the Stormbird, which lay right out by Nunas, and where Andreas Ekra was headman. 
a little nearer lay the sea-fire where petr sansa was busy with his men and nearest of all the sea-flower which was almost ready for sea although jacob limped about in a state of intoxication from morning till night hey ho he said work away men work away lads on the last sunday most of the men went to church with their wives and even jacob limped up more or less sober with his upper lip shaved and looking quite blue they all met outside the brown wooden church whose bell rang out into the grey wintry air people from the farms around who had driven up in sleighs drawn by fine horses with bells on their harness and fishermen who had waded through the snow with their wives inside the church the fishermen were lost among the others so they had appropriated a fixed space for themselves far back under the gallery during the singing of the hymn many a wife from the shore district raised her eyes from her hymn-book to look across at her husband sitting on the other side of the aisle and the hymn became a little prayer for his return from the long voyage northward the men both old and young looked up at the priest while he preached but in the minds of the fishermen was the thought that god was in the wind and on the sea and that they would soon be on their way to meet him the day before eliseus hilla had said to his wife that he thought they ought to take the sacrament this last sunday that he was at home eliseus was not a religious man but he had spells of being exceedingly good to his wife and children and if a misfortune happened to any one in the district it would bring tears to the eyes of at any rate one person and that was eliseus on this occasion however as ill luck would have it he flew into a rage with berit again and before he knew what he was about he had flung her against the wall and given her several blows after which he had hurried into his clothes and gone to church forbidding her to accompany him when the sacrament was about to be administered however he was seized with such remorse that he left the church as he walked slowly homeward before the others he recollected how the priest had said that one day we should all have to stand face to face with god and he felt himself to be so great a sinner that he did not know what to do the following evening the beach was full of people for now the boats were to be launched first of all there was a little merry-making in each poop cabin the door was so small that a full-grown man could only just creep through it and in the narrow space in front of the bunk with its skin coverings a fire was burning in a rusty cooking-stove upon which there now stood a pan of steaming ale upon the skin-rugs lay and sat women and men and bowls of hot ale and glasses of spirits went round men and women sang and eyes grew moist and cornelis gumon played the concertina with a girl sitting on his knee lights shone from other poop windows all around the bay then men with lanterns came tramping in from the boats lying farthest out and one halted it was jacob the seal was to be the first boat launched and the other boats crews came to help there was a cutting north wind that carried stinging snowflakes the light of the lantern shone upon a ring of bearded faces around the boat 
and when Olaf Myran succeeded in setting light to a great heap of seaweed and driftwood which he had collected, it was a bonfire that lighted up the snow and the beach and shone upon the grey waters of the fjord. An old man was led up to the spot. He had a long white beard, and wore a red woollen cap pulled down over his ears, and big white fingerless woollen gloves on his hands. It was Peter Hedman, and this was his great day, for he was still able to sing the boats into the sea. He was helped upon a large stone, and after clearing his throat and wiping his nose on his glove, he cried, "'Now, boys, you must all work together.' Everyone was turned out of the cabin, and the men stood side by side close together, with their backs against the side of the boat, looking quite small under her great brown bow. Then Peter Hedman sang out, "'Here we go! Oh-ho! Oh! Oh! Oh!' The men strained every muscle, their faces contorted with the effort. The logs under the keel rolled, and the heavy boat moved, but stopped again. Peter Hedman sang on, "'Heave-ho! Oh-ho! Oh! Oh!' Backs and legs stiffened again, and the boat grated along a little way. But then the men had to pause to take a breath. Lars Miran was looking at the old man with the white beard, standing in the light of the bonfire, and as he looked he thought how, many hundred years before, such an old man would have been the sacrificing priest, and the bonfire the sacrificial fire, and the people were drinking to Thor and Freya, before the Lofoten boats set sail. The shore was the same, and the fjord was the same, and the mountains and the boats were as they are now, and the people were probably very much the same too. Now the old man sang in a high falsetto, There she goes! Oh, ho! Oh, oh, oh! And the next moment the great boat lay rocking upon the water. Christaver shouted his thanks to the other boat's crews for their assistance, and dealt out drams, after which the whole party passed on with their lanterns, and launched boat after boat. The old man's eyes grew moist from the effect of his numerous potations, and his heave-ho, oh-ho, oh, 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 grew louder and louder. Before the men went home to sleep their last night in a comfortable bed, they went out and moored their boats a little way from land, raised the mast, and placed the sail in readiness. Silence fell at last upon the beach. The lanterns were gone, and the fire had died down, but the four boats lay rocking on the waters of the bay, with their pennons flying from the mastheads, ready to set sail. End of chapter 4